welcome to another exciting episode of Chipping Away, where your hosts Akash and Durga take you on journeys of South Asia, its archaeology, anthropology, architecture, art, and everything beyond. This episode, a continuation of our series called Elementals, looks at various natural elements, earth, fire, water, and others, and how they've helped shape the collective human narrative. In the last episode, the first in the series, we looked at fire, and in this, we're looking at earth or just one little aspect of Earth and how we use it for dating. And that dating method is luminescence dating. And we looked at this dating method and others used in archaeological sciences in one of our previous episodes in Season 1. So if you haven't checked that out, please go ahead and get a crash course on archaeological dating methods. To know more, we have with us Dr. Ayush Srivastava a postdoctoral fellow from the School of Earth and Environmental Sciences, University of St. Andrews, Scotland. Hi, Ayush. Hi, Ayush. Hi, Akash. Hi, Durga. Thank you guys for having me here with you today. Hey, thank you for being here. So, Ayush, what do you do? I'm currently a research fellow in luminescence dating at School of Earth and Environmental Sciences in St. Andrews. And until recently, I used to work more like a geochronologist, but now I'm also shifting towards science of geoarchaeology. Wow, that's interesting. So what is luminescence dating? Luminescence dating are broadly, you can see it as, as a method or, or rather a group of methods that determines how long ago you know, a mineral grain, especially a quartz or a feldspar mineral grain, was exposed to sunlight or enough heating. And basically what it tells you the last time, if it's been exposed to sunlight, it tells you when was the last time a sediment or sand particle was buried. Or it tells you when the last time a pottery thing or something was heated. So it gives you a chronological perspective. So sediments have various particles and particulates. So which exactly is helpful and useful for you? Sediment, it may consist of a lot of different mineral grains. But for luminescence dating, we are particularly interested in certain minerals, especially quartz or feldspars. Even within feldspars, we're more interested in potassium feldspars. We might use other minerals, but these two have more advantages. First, these two are the most commonly occurring minerals, so you're more likely to find um, quartz and feldspars and sand grain particles. The more important point and the reason we prefer these minerals, quartz and feldspars, are because naturally they act as dosimeters. So what it means is they have the ability to, to be able to absorb incoming radiation from their surroundings, from their surrounding soil, from surrounding sediments, and be able to store that in them. And in the lab, when we artificially stimulate them with light or heat, so they're able to emit luminescence, which actually acts as a parameter for how long they've been you know, buried or they've not been exposed to sunlight or for how long they have not been exposed to enough heating. So in simple terms, they have the ability to respond to natural radioactivity and in a way that they are able to store and emit luminescence in them, which is of interest to us. Now of late, we have had studies where people have been able to use other minerals, but again, because these two are more common and more stable, so we tend to use these two minerals. With regards to luminescence dating, there are two types. One called optically stimulated luminescence or OSL, wherein we use light and light sources, and two thermoluminescence or TL, wherein we use heating. So, how is quartz particularly useful and how is feldspar useful? Right. Both quartz and feldspars are routinely used by geologists and geoarchaeologists. But these two minerals, they come with their own pros and cons. So, depending upon the context, we usually choose what you want to go for. 
for instance, if you want to go for something that's quite old, so feldspars are more desirable because we're able to go back up to a million years back in time using them. But then they also, because feldspars are a complex group of minerals, and it's not just one mineral, so they have their own internal complexities. And there's one particular intrinsic phenomenon, it's called anomalous fading. If not properly corrected for, we might end up having underestimated ages. This is something that we don't come across while we're using quartz. But then with quartz, we can't really go back further in time because the signal, the luminescent signal, which has been building up inside quartz, it starts to saturate. So depending upon what kind of dose rate it's been receiving from the surroundings, dating quartz can limit you to last 200 to 250,000 years. So quartz is, let's say, more favorable, but feldspars are used when we want to go, you know, even back in time. So... Feldspars tend to get weathered, you know, more easily than quartz, so we're more likely to encounter quartz. But yes, if you want to date further back in time, then and if quartz, it's usually people tend to check quartz first, and if it shows saturation properties, then feldspars are the answer. So quartz and feldspar occurs naturally in the sediments. So how can we associate them with human activity? And how do we know that what we're dating is actually dating the human activity at the site or we're just dating some natural phenomenon? So we're not dating anything that is directly related to human activity. So what we do is we try to date the context or the stratigraphy and then explain it in the context of human activities. Let's say if you find an artifact and if you date sediment around it, then you know how old the artifact is. But we can also use this method to date certain objects directly, right? Yes, we can use it to date artifacts like pottery or hearts and which were heated by the early population while they were being used. But again, it does not tell you when it was being used or something. It only tells you when it was last time exposed to enough heat to start the luminescence process in it. Okay, so how does this action of heating or fire work with regards to this whole system? Heating or light, which is again a form of energy, so what it does is it bleaches the entire luminescence signal in them. And that's why when we date something in the lab, so in the lab what we're doing is we're artificially providing heat or light to see what was the stored luminescence in between the two periods when it was last exposed to light or heat and when it's exposed to heat and light in the lab. So the time period in between, it tells you, you know, how old um, that thing is. The, the two things that we calculate in the lab basically. So first, the stored luminescence within a grain, which we called uh, equivalent dose. And the second is we also want to know at what rate was it receiving the ionizing radiation from the environment, something that we call dose rate. So we calculate two things, equivalent dose, and then if you know the dose rate, and we divide the dose by dose rate, and that's how we get an age. This is quite fascinating. And I wonder how you apply this to larger contexts, such as sites or entire deserts, as you worked in Thar, for instance. If you want to know something about the deserts, of course, you can't date the desert as a whole. What we can do is we can look at small geological or geomorphological units like, let's say, sand dunes. And within sand dunes, we can collect samples at different depths, date those and to find out, you know, to establish a chronology and see how that dune was being accumulated. And what are the signs of dune activity like? And did the dune move in the past or, you know, has the dune been stabilized for a longer period of time? Same things we do in other settings, like in fluvial settings, if there are river terraces, how the river terraces were constructed. So again, you can target different river terraces or just investigate one river terraces by collecting samples at different depths at different locations. And the same we can apply in glacial settings where you can look at how moraines were deposited or what's the movement of glaciers like. 
We also use it in other in settings like in the LERS world, how LERS was deposited and eroded away with time. And in coastal marine settings, if we can retrace if the sea levels has been changing or how has it been changing in the time period that we're interested in. So I think to answer this question, we look at the geomorphological unit and then either we study one unit in detail or we go to different units and just try to cover as much area as possible. But then again, it's not a very in-depth study. So from my experience in the Indian desert, I would say just stick to one smaller unit investigate it in detail and then integrate it with you know available data sets that we have from other studies or other regions so how does the process of luminescence dating happen the first step is making sure that when you're collecting a sample in the field you need to make sure that the sample is not exposed to any form of light which is tricky or you don't end up heating it because that might just bleach the luminescence signal in it and then you're going to end up having you know, really modern date or no date so usually we tend to use really opaque hard tubes and we insert those into sedimentary faces to collect our samples. Or sometimes people go and do field work at night, mark everything during the day, just go collect sample at night or cover themselves with black tarpaulin or something. When we take the sample in the lab, our labs usually have subdued light conditions. So it's like the kind of light you would probably see in those photography rooms where they develop films. The first thing is we want to make sure that we are able to extract uh, quartz or potassium feldspars that we are interested in. So that's a straightforward process. So we treat samples with some chemicals to remove organics, which we are not interested in, carbonates, or if the samples are sticky, we want to make sure the grains are apart. And then we can use heavy liquids like sodium or lithium polytungstate to extract quartz and feldspars. So once we have pure quartz and feldspars, then we can go ahead and use sophisticated instruments to see what the stored luminescence in them is like. What are some of the problems you might encounter while doing this? I would categorize them into two. First, the field problems, which are quite common to you know other fields as well. Then you are not able to collect samples or the site is in such a way that you have to do it in light. But again, these are something that you can take care of if you plan well in advance and if you know your sites well. In the lab, there are some issues. Some are in your hands, some are not in your hands. And I think the most common one is you want to make sure that you have enough quartz or feldspar that you want to date. And that is something you will not know until you have done certain chemical treatments and until you have tried to extract it. There are times when you collect a sample, you go take it into the lab, you have to extract quartz or feldspars from it, from different chemical processes. And once you're doing it, you realize, oh, there's not enough quartz that you can date. Or there's not enough feldspars that you can date. The other potential issues are, they're no more technical and then related to the luminescence process. The first is if you're dating quartz and there are chances, if the sample is too old, then quartz may not be helpful. So you might want to switch to feldspars. And a very common problem is that each subsample from the same sample gives you a different number. And then you think, okay, so how do you explain it? I mean, in an ideal setting, one sample should give you one age, but different subsamples are giving you different numbers. And it's very, very common. There could be a number of reasons. Like when you're collecting a sample, there are odds that, you know, that sampling site is affected by, let's say, bioturbation or some root activities or some animals are burrowing in there. So what they have done is they've mixed sediments up. And then you end up getting mixed ages. It's one of the most common things. And the second thing is sometimes what happens is before a grain was buried, it wasn't exposed to enough sunlight. If it's not exposed to enough sunlight or let's say enough heating, so it's also carrying over signal from its previous cycle. So it's going to give you an older number. Likewise, some grains might have been exposed well, some have not been exposed well, something that we term as bleaching. So some are well bleached, 
some are not well bleached so you're going to have a data set which is highly over dispersed and the other reasons that you have of this is in deserts where i work you would expect a nice hot sun all the grains are fully bleached and usually it's quite nice and devoid of problems but imagine a setting like fluvial setting where all the activities going on under water and you may not have ample sunlight penetrating through different columns of water so you're going to have an over dispersed data and sometimes you can explain it like if you are in the field if you have seen some root activities or some say earthworms or something you can explain your dispersion or if you know the context like if it's a fluvial context or if it's let's say you're dating agricultural soil so from tilling again it's mixed so if you know the context you can explain why your data is like this but sometimes you cannot because you don't know if when the grain was receiving radioactivity from the environment was it receiving it at a uniform rate throughout the time you can model it but then it's quite a complex thing so there are different problems that we come across and but then again if you can spot the problem and if you can explain the data and the other thing with luminescence dating is unlike radiocarbon the uncertainties are going to be larger usually up to 10% there's no dramatic way of lowering these we have dates which have up to like 4 to 5% of errors but there's no way of dramatically lowering these numbers to 2 or 3% Well, I guess with technology developing, maybe in the future we could get dates that are probably more accurate, more reliable. That would probably satisfy a geochronologist like you. And I'm quite curious about how your work in Thar Desert looked like. Like, what was the project like? So, right. So, Thar Desert is quite a unique desert in its own sense because of a couple of things. First, when we imagine deserts, we usually think, you know, of a large. a place with lots of sand dunes and very few people star desert is quite the opposite it's the most densely populated desert in the world there are lots of people and with lots of people <laughs> come a lot of anthropogenic disturbances that are altering the landscape and the second un- thing that makes thar desert very unique is that it's not a big desert like sahara or the kalahari or the ones in australia but within its landscape you're able to identify a lot of different types of sand dunes I mean I wouldn't be wrong if I said nearly all the conceivable form of sand dunes can be spotted in the Thar desert so there are quite a lot distinct dune fields which makes it very interesting that the question is first how did these dunes form and when did these dunes form and the second thing is there's a large human activity angle and humans have been there since in this civilization as we know so what's been their role like in in shaping the whole landscape before indus valley civilization we have evidence of paleolithic occupation of the deserts there is an important paleolithic site in a sand dune called 16r in didwana which is a fossilized sand dune site which was occupied through time so it's interesting to see how the desert could have had its role in terms of access and movement of people in prehistoric times the first ever application of luminescence dating to dating sand especially from desert setting was actually done in the context of the thar desert back in the 80s by a group of geoscientists from prl ahmedabad and since then in the following 10 to 15 years they were able to you know go to different regions in the thar and collect different samples and date those so before their studies there was a kind of debate that if the thar desert is of anthropogenic origin so by providing ages that were as old as 200,000 year old they were able to put a stamp on the antiquity of the desert and prove that this desert is not of anthropogenic origin in my phd i explored what were the chronological gaps 
what were the geographical gaps that were there. So in the previous studies, I mean, those were done in 80s and 90s. A lot has changed in terms of advancements in the science of women's dating. We now have more robust dating protocols, which are you know able to give you more precise dates. So the other aim of my PhD in that way was to revisit some of the sites that were dated in the past and see what the new data set is like and how well does it compare. Yeah. So what did you find out in the end? So, as I mentioned, context is important. So, instead of just going about in the desert and dating different sandwiches from different parts, I decided to focus on two different dune fields in two different parts of the desert. And those dune fields were of different dune types. In that process, I was not only able to investigate two different dune types, but investigating in two different regions meant I could also do some spatial and temporal comparisons. So, in the end, what I found was um, the desert is old, that's been established, but what new that I found out was there's been a lot of human activities, especially since the independence of India, since the irrigation policies changed, and since we have had a massive population boom in the desert. So in terms of geomorphology, in terms of dune activity, what I found out was some dunes accumulated at a really high rate, as high as up to five meters a year, something that is unprecedented compared to geological times where there have been times in geological history when Indian summer monsoon, which shapes the desert, was quite intense and of course we had more accumulation. But what's more intriguing here is humans have been able to surpass the natural extinct. So the rates at which dunes accumulated in the last 70 years, it's been never seen before and five to six meters per year, it's quite a lot. And there are lots of different reasons why this dune activity is so high and of course population is one of the reasons and the second reason is people have been trying to deflate the landscape so in that process what they do is you know they want to remove sand from one place to make way for agricultural land and in that process the sand has to go somewhere right so if you're trying to remove a dune from one place the sand is going to go to some other place and then get accumulated which is not a good sign because as we talk about desertification in fact last decade was the United Nations decade against desertification. So as we talk about desertification, as we talk about you know, pollution which is caused by the dust in these deserts, we need to consider the role of these anthropogenic activities, which is quite a lot. And I, I think compared to other deserts, it's a lot serious in India. So there was a project about planting trees around the Thar, so as to curb the desertification. So that anthropogenic activity, how is that interfering with the whole process of desertification? That's a very good question, actually. So there are both pros and cons, and I think the key is planning here. So you just cannot plant every or any tree in the desert. Sometimes you end up having invasive species, and that is the case in a lot of districts in the Thar Desert. They got plants from different countries, from Southern America and from Sub-Saharan Africa, and they became invasive in nature. So what it does is it starts dominating in their own ecosystem, and then this means the local species, they have to pay the price. And the second thing is, if it's done in the right and sustainable and more planned way, and it has been shown that it does help. And there's a dedicated desert research institute in Jodhpur. And it has done some really good work in terms of this fight against desertification. And what they've also done is they've also educated people in, you know, how to properly manage the use of their land in terms of what crops should they grow. How frequently should they grow certain crops? How well irrigated or not well irrigated should their sites be? So it also boils down to this knowledge exchange between scientists and local people who actually are living in the desert. So. Yeah, in short, it has to be done in a very planned way because we have evidence where it was done without thought. It has created more problems than finding solutions. 
let's just go off topic a little bit. One concept that frequently comes up when it comes to the desertification of the tar is the possible existence of previous river systems and fluvial systems and river channels in this region. With work that is done in the Sahara Desert and in Arabia, people have been able to identify specific phases wherein these desert regions were very humid and what is called as the Green Sahara and Green Arabia. Do you see if something similar is possible in the Tar? I would not completely rule out this possibility of being able to identify different phases of different dry and humid phases. But I must point out something here is it's not as straightforward as you know one would expect that the desert was humid or it was dry because in the context of Thar, as I said, it has distinct dune fields of very different dune types. And these dune types, because they're so different from one another, they also behave in a different fashion to the same environmental conditions. For example, I talked about human interference. This are going to affect parabolic dunes more than linear dune forms because parabolic dunes let's are more mobile in nature and they're more sensitive to environmental changes. So in the broader picture, if you're going to talk about humid or dry phases, to be able to talk in a way that, you know, okay, the desert was dry or the desert was humid. We need to look at different dune fields. We, look, we need to, not just dune fields, we'll also have to look at different lake systems that are there in the desert and be able to pull out those time periods where they showed some, what they, where they were in sync or not. And now that I mentioned lakes, there are a lot of lakes in the Thar and a lot of great work has been done in the context of identifying when the lakes dry or when the lake levels were high or low. And one thing is sure is that we still don't have those time periods when all the lakes were at the same drying or high levels. So when the lakes do not show any sink, when the dune fields are not in sink, so it's going to be very difficult to identify those broad, dry or humid phases. But having said that, as we have more investigations in future, as we have more dates and data in future, we might be able to answer these questions. And to test this hypothesis that how these broad environmental factors they affect geomorphological units in different fashion, even the same units, I dated two linear dunes in Bikaner and collected dune samples from two linear dunes which are next to each other. And linear dunes are the most stable compared to other dune forms in the Thar. And at comparable depths, what I found was these two dunes which are like next to each other, they had completely different history. So it should never be site-specific or sample-specific. I think that would be a wonderful point to end this talk. I mean, at the end of the day, context is everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's everything. And yeah. Thank you, Ayush. Thank you. Thank you, Ayush. Yeah, oh, thank you so much. Let's continue this discussion on our future episodes on the Chipping Away podcast. Our new episode will be out just in a matter of 15 days. So stay tuned and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at chipinawayind and send us a line at chipinawayind at gmail.com. So we'll meet soon and until then, keep chipping away. Bye-bye. Away is available on all major streaming websites such as Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts and so on. So go ahead, subscribe wherever you feel comfortable or you can just log in to Buzzsprout and check out Chip Away. 
We have a new episode coming up every fortnight, that is after every 15 days, so twice a month. Each episode comes with a new theme, new points for discussion, and something for us to take back and ponder on. So join us in our journey of understanding our collective past better and to question the existing and new theories and models that we encounter every so often. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at ChippinAwayIND. And drop us a line about your comments, inputs, and what you would like to hear from us at ChippinAwayIND at gmail.com. In this current environment of chaos, uncertainty, and a lot of tension that surrounds us with the pandemic, impending lockdown, and other restrictions, let Chip in a Way be your little moment of recluse from the world around you. Help us make this little movement a little more by reading the blog posts that go with our podcasts and other discussions online and offline. For the blogs, you can check out www.klmighty.com that is K-A-L-E-M-I-G-H-T-Y dot com. We have all the links in the description for our podcast and you can check it out online on Google, Spotify and other major streaming sites. So, see you again in a matter of 15 days with a new topic, a new theme and something new to pick your brain with. Till then, keep chipping away, stay safe and take care. Bye-bye.